Welcome to the Particle Podcast, where we talk about science and the people who just love it. My name is Rose, and I have loved science ever since I was a little kid. Which is why I am so delighted to say that today's guest is founder of Deadly Science, Corey Tutt. Corey is a scientist and science advocate who is the New South Wales Young Australian of the Year for 2020. He stopped by to chat about his science journey, Australia's first scientists, and how to shear an alpaca. Welcome to the podcast, Corey. Hey, thank you for having me. As always, starting off, what do you actually do? Well, apart from working full-time on the, at the Matilda Centre at the University of Sydney um, on the Cracks in the Ice project, writing culturally appropriate material for um, people that suffer from substance dependence and mental health um, issues, I run this not-for-profit organisation called Deadly Science, and I'm a Camilla Roy man. What does Deadly Science do? So deadly science, and I want you all to imagine um, when, you're, when you're a kid, if you see a cool blue tongue lizard and you want to work out how it does or, you know, um, kids are the best scientists, right? So yeah. um, I deadly science actually just sends resources and mentors hundreds or if not thousands of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids from around Australia. Like we've literally got 106 communities and we are empowering them uh, by sending books, telescopes, you name it. And also with questions like how many brains does an octopus have? Well, an octopus has eight brains. Cool. Do you know how many hearts an earthworm has? Oh, please. So I learned this the other day that an earthworm, and I learned this from one of my deadly junior scientists, that an earthworm has five hearts. Wow, but they're so little. They're so little. And if you cut them in little bits, they turn into their own little mini worms. And sometimes I feel like I'm that busy that I just will split into a second person. <laughs> yes. That is, as you were speaking just now, I wrote down, how do you balance it all? Well, I would like to say um, for a lot of coffees and a lot of compartmentalization. Yeah. And I, it, the way I just said that sounded like me- metalization. I'm not biotic. <laughs> Um, and, human, and I also played rugby at the same time as well. Oh, my goodness. So um, I guess the biggest thing for me is that I have a really flexible role at the University of Sydney that my employers know what I do. It's a bit hard mm. for them not to know what I do. And they give me a, they allow me to have the flexibility to move some of my tasks that are um, important in my full-time role to actually do this deadly science stuff, take calls. Um, and I get a lot of calls from deadly junior scientists from around Australia. That's so cool. Um, and they sort of ask me questions like how glass is made. And then I say, you know what, it's made by sand. Or like I, they ask me like, you know, what is a buffalo's horns made of? And I'm like, I don't know. What, are, what yeah. do you think the buffalo's horns are made of? And they go metal, wood. But then I go, actually, look at your fingernails. Ah, and yep. if you look at your fingernails and you look at hair, that's keratin, right? And that's what they're made mm-hmm. out of. I just, I love that connection to the kids. Where did that inspiration come from? Where did the idea to go, you know what, we need kid, like young kids to really get into science? If I can take everyone on a journey back in time, oh, please hop do. into my DeLorean, uh, my virtual DeLorean. Um, yeah. But when I was a kid, I, like, you know, I didn't have the best childhood growing up. Um, I I witnessed a lot of trauma and mm. I, you know, we moved around a hell of a lot. And, you know, my only real solace was, like, you know, other kids, I would sort of become friends with other kids, but then we'd sort of move and, Mm. Um, and it was, you know, through, you know, through these really bad stuff that happened, I always found comfort in animals. And, you know, we lived in a place called Tumby Bay, which is in the, um, South Australian, sort of right, right near Port Lincoln on the big bite there. You know, we lived in a really unique place that sort of like you'd get shinglebacks and brown snakes, but you'd also walk out into the front yard and there'd be a marina there and you would be able to see sharks from the shoreline and, you know, go fishing. And it was like it was a really magical area to live and yeah a lot of my childhood was spent picking up snakes and lizards and spiders and you know I spent a lot of child- time with my sister doing that and you know we would like not to the extent my sister my sister never really <laughs> did this to the extent that I did but you know the way I connected with people and made friends was learning about the animals that I was interacting with and the science as well 
you know, yeah. if you um, like, and these were the things that sort of like, um, I guess, separated me from other kids in the sense mm-hmm. that I could tell you a hundred different things about a blue tongue lizard or a shingleback or a brown snake while holding it and tell you the story about them and leave you sort of like, wow. So that like that science communicator, like sort of vibe was always in me from a really young age. And I think that I found solace in having animals and nature around me and trying to understand the world that I was living in because we didn't really have books. We didn't really have educational resources. The first book I ever got was from my grandfather who it was called Reptiles in Colour by Harold Cogger. And it was from the 80s. And to give you context, I'm born in the 90s. So the book was already (laughs) about 10 years old by the time it came to me. But I love that book because it was it was something in me that, one, I had to learn how to read it because, you know, like most Aboriginal children, I was behind. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I was behind in my literacy and numeracy skills. And, you know, I think a lot of young boys, um, you know, we do, we do sort of fall behind because, you know, girls are way smarter than us. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, I, I was a bit behind, like, and I was a bit behind most of my life in in terms of um you know understanding sort of like i i understood the natural world around me more than i did the textbook yeah you know um and i think that's because i was interested in it and when i got this book i read it from back to front probably about four thousand times and that's (laughs) that's probably not an accurate estimate it's probably even more than that and i learned things like you know, an eastern water dragon can hold its breath underwater for an hour. You it's know, a long time. It's a long time. But it meant when I found an eastern water dragon in the wild, I knew how to catch it because I'd read all this <sighs> stuff about it, right? And I'd be like, okay, it's just ran into the creek. I have an hour to wait before it comes up for air and let me pick where it's going to come out for air. And I would Oh, that's that. so cool. And, like, you know, and... It wasn't just like, it wasn't just things like that. It was, you know, it, it was the sort of like if I saw a new book, I would read it back to front because I was so just amazed of um, what would be in the book. So, I mean, one of the one of the other books I read was about um, weather systems and how they develop and how hot air and cold air mix together and they create, you know, weather systems. But it was, um, it was always like there was always that hunger to learn more. Um, yeah, you know, and other kids, like uh, I got compared to Steve Irwin a lot when I was a kid, which I absolutely hated because I didn't want to be Steve Irwin. I just wanted to be someone that just loved animals and was able yeah. to um, bring joy to people from that. And um, when I sort of got to about 16, I decided I wanted to be a zookeeper and, you know, it was through the AIM mentoring program that I'd met a guy named Paul Sinclair who was a zookeeper at Taronga Zoo and he was an Indigenous guy. And he said, you know what, you can do this, you can go for it. And then I sat across from my careers advisor and we can say this because we're friends now. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I actually, you know, I really respect the man. But he said to mm-hmm. me, he goes, you know what, kids like you don't become zookeepers. Um, you wow. know, and look, that would be an earth-shattering moment for most kids. Yeah. Or it'd be a moment where you sort of like stick your rude finger up and give them a bit of, yeah. um, you know, are a bit rude. But for me, it was a moment where he'd give me the option of a trade, jail, or death. That was mm-hmm. like a, you're going to die young. Um, and it, it was heavy. It was heavy, but also I came from a background of trauma. I came from yeah. a background of, you know, um, a home where it wasn't like it wasn't the best. Um, I mean, I got fed and had a roof over my head, but like those things only add up to so much. Um, but yeah, I sort of said like, you know what, I've got to do something. So I actually finished school in year 10 and sat off on my merry way. I worked at Dapto Pools and Dapto Maccas um, down in the Illawarra and they were noble professions um, for $9 an hour. <laughs> right. um, and I ended up saving up uh, like probably about 1500 bucks and it took me a while and I got a ticket um a bus ticket to go to Western Australia because I'd seen oh, on, I'd seen on, yeah I, I'd seen online that um there's a place called Rue Gully Wildlife Sanctuary and this 
this woman who was a bit eccentric um, and her name is Carol Ander and she was carrying a rifle and she was shooting all these snakes and I just, you know, it made me so angry but I just couldn't understand why. Yeah. Why she would do that when she was, run, like she was running a wildlife sanctuary. Anyway, I, my mission was to volunteer there and after months of nagging her, she finally let me in. I was the first volunteer <laughs> under the age of 18 to go to Rugali from interstate. And, you know, it was, um, it was interesting because I met, um, you know, I met this couple called Jim and Norma and unfortunately they've passed away um, recently. And, um, you know, they took me in and like these, this random couple that after coming from the South Coast of New South Wales all the way up to Boy Up Brook in the middle of, nowhere in Western Australia <laughs> the country. Yeah. <laughs> I got I'm just picturing by... Boy Up Brook in my head. I'm like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And I got picked up by these, um, this couple that I had no idea I'd never met. And it was like midnight and they picked me up from Perth and they took me back to their house at 16. Anything wow. could have happened to me. Um, yeah. but they fed me and they had a German shepherd named Holly. Um, oh. And they, they made sure I had a bed. They, you know, and the best thing that ever happened was I I just, you know, and I was a pretty shy kid back then. And, like, I, you know, I felt like for the first time in my life I actually just got listened to, you know. And yeah. I, um, my pop was still alive, but he was the only one that really listened to me. Like, um, like it was there was none of this stuff like you're a kid, you know, you don't know anything. It was like, oh, wow, tell me more, you know. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I worked at this wildlife sanctuary and then I came back and I volunteered at Shoalhaven Zoo for a bit. And um, it was it was interesting because I ended up becoming a zookeeper there. I achieved my dream. Phenomenal. And I'm then, quite young, I will add. Yeah, I mean, and, like, it doesn't seem that long ago, but the time goes really fast. Um, yeah. And yeah, like I still got the I still got a message from Jim and Norma every week until about a year ago, um, and oh. and until about a month ago, actually Norma passed away. And oh, so um, but yeah, it was like, you know, it felt like it was just yesterday that I was there, and yeah. you know, you sort of had a blanket; it was all gone. And um, yeah, I was eighteen. I was working at Shaivan Zoo, and um, you know, I was working my butt off. Like I was working really hard. Um, but I was enjoying it. I was on apprentice jackaroo wages, um, <laughs> as you are. <laughs> um, and you know, it was it was tough work. You know, I was I was very young, I was very eager. Um, and then my best friend passed away, and there's a trigger warning for people out there because it's a serious issue, mental health, especially in the animal yeah. industry. Um, and it often doesn't get talked to, spoken about, but um that really rocked me. Um, and that joy that I'm getting from telling you about blue tongue lizards and water yeah. dragons that hold their breath underwater, I'd actually lost that. Um, mm. For a, you know, and that that was really hard for me to to reconcile and get that back because once you've lost something like that, it is really hard to get it back. Um, and that passion, I saw it add in the Illawarra Mercury for an alpaca handler. <laughs> oh, what? And. Um, you know, I feel like an idiot now uh, when I tell this story and I, like, um, you know, there's there's a really good radio um, podcast and it's called Walking Together and um, actually the guy that I ended up doing this job with um, is on it as well and we talk about it. But it was like I rocked up to this guy's house and just to give you, the listeners, a, a bit of an idea, here's this depressed yeah. 18-year-old, like, and I was depressed in a suit, nervous because I've just quit my zookeeping job that I earned like like 200 bucks a week at <laughs> working like six days. And um, it's like I'm in a suit and this guy just goes, you start Monday. And I feel oh. like he goes, oh, you know, come to my house and have a job interview. And I'm like, oh, I drove, to, I drove my, my beaten up Commodore to his house and he, he happened just to live down the road and I wore a suit from Lowe's, which is what most kids from DAPTO probably wear. To their first interview um and oh. it doesn't fit properly i think i no, actually I, I wore my year 10 formal suit that's what oh, I classic um yep. and yeah it was um 
he goes, you start Monday. And, you know, the moment I found out that I was resilient um, was yeah. the first alpaca I saw. And, you know, <laughs> I want to tell this story like it was a masculine story, um, yeah. but it, it really wasn't. It was a stud male alpaca named Pikachu. Um, oh. <laughs> which I really wish it was like a, you know, it was called like four or something like that. And yeah. um, this alpaca headbutted me in the face, like really hard. Um, no. And I cracked my cheekbone and I had a black eye. Like it, I got whacked in the face really hard. And, you know, for a lot of kids and a lot of people, and like I'm 18 years old, like I'm yeah. young, you know, mm-hmm. um, it would be enough to say, you know what, I can't do this job anymore. You know, and there was a job I had once before that where I was, you know, I went to this, uh, they go, oh, you've got the job. And it was a marketing job and you're like selling Star, And I lasted an hour in it. I was like, you know, what? I can't do this <laughs> shit. But then I get hit by an alpaca. It cracks my cheekbone. And I just, something in me tells me I've just got to keep going and keep working. Wow. Um, and then, you know, for like a couple of years, I end up shearing alpacas and going around Australia and New Zealand. And, you know, I'd be driving along, um, in South Australia or Queensland or New South Wales and I would see that lizard again on the side of the road and I'd get out and I'd move it. Mm-hmm. And if there was someone was around, I would tell them all about it and I learned <laughs> how to to love that that part of my life again. Um, yes. And, yeah, like there's there's been times where I think that, um, you know, it was shearing saved me um, mm. big time. And I think that, um, you know, every young person should do a stint in an, in a shearing shed just to see what it's like because um, <laughs> the conversations you have, the um, the memories I have from that are um, insane. Like I had a lady once um, who I was shearing on a property and I, I, I didn't particularly like this woman, um, yeah. I'll be honest with you, but I was shearing on a property and... I went to the toilet during the the night and I woke out. I woke up, and um, my old business partner doesn't know about this, James. But um, I woke up and I just see these glasses and these eyes just peering at me, and she she was ready to shoot me because she thought I was a, um, she thought I was like an intruder, and uh, <laughs> and I like you know it's stories like Did that. Did you freeze? I, I froze because um, she didn't particularly like me very much because I was an Indigenous mm-hmm. guy on her property. And there's still white racists around wherever, in all, all walks of life. And um, she thought I was stealing something, even though I just, you know, was using the bathroom. You were working, um, yeah. Yeah, and, we, we, like, you know, as just shearers, you generally stay in the farms where you work. And um, it's kind of, yeah, it was, it was one experience that I would never forget. And I just froze and I'm, I'm glad I went to the toilet beforehand because I probably would have <laughs> myself. Uh, <laughs> and, um, yeah, well, anyway, so like I ended up, um, ended up giving up the shearing because I kind of, it served its purpose. Yeah. Um, and I ended up, um, yeah, ended up, working at the RSPCA and the Animal Welfare League and doing some study as well. So I ended up doing animal animal technology certificate free and working at the Garvin Institute and I was working with mice and I was teaching myself genetics. Um, That's you know, cool. Most zookeepers don't know genetics, which is not surprising. Mm. Um, and I was teaching myself genetics. So, like, I was going from year 10 to, um, you know, I'd done year 10 science at a low level. So I never really got to learn Punnett squares or, you know, learn how genes work, but Mm -hmm. it went on this journey for about a year and a half of just studying as much genetics as I could. Um, so I could learn. So I even, I even started playing this game where I'd look at license plates on cars and I would make up mouse strains. Um, (laughs) Oh, that's clever. And yeah, like it was, it was that kind of stuff that I, um, like I really enjoyed and I realized I just, you know what, I really just love science. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I really yeah. love science in the sense of, um, you know, like everything about it. And I, I said, you know what, I said to myself, oh, like I'm going to go to, um, I'm going to go and see the University of Sydney and see if I can become an animal technician there. And I did. And mm. 
Um, it wasn't long after that that I wanted to work with kids in Redfern and, you know, I'm an Aboriginal guy and I just I just wanted to um to just try and get some more mob involved in science. Mm-hmm. You know, we are the first scientists and I Yeah. I remember living in my pop and him pulling bush soap off the trees and um, you know, telling me to wash my hands of it and you know, there's a really funny story from when I was a kid and we were fishing and we we're fishing for eels and um we had a fishing hook and he cast it and he got me in the ear and it got stuck in my ear. The hook. But then he pulls he pulls bush soap off the tree and puts it on my ear so I don't get infected. Wow. Because we're using worms to catch eels. And, you know, like that in itself is a bit of like he used bush medicine to treat my ear, even though yeah. like, as funny as that sounds, you know, and then there was like, there was all these sort of things that were just around me that I saw as science, but we don't necessarily traditionally in science think of that as a science. We think of that as, mm. you know, oh, an old bush remedy or like, you know, we we underplay that. And um, so I, I'll redact what I'm saying. I'll actually go back to what I was saying. Um, I started <laughs> I started sort of connecting with the AIM program in um, while I was at the University of Sydney and. Yeah. Seeing what I could do as a mentor, and I mean, an animal technician is a noble profession, but it's not necessarily like they're not really, we're not really given the the same sort of respect as a PhD student, even though PhD mm-hmm. students probably aren't respected that well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like animal technicians, are, it's a noble profession and it is it is 100% science. Um, yeah. You need to look after those animals. You need to take that DNA. You need to supply those things to the researcher even if you don't do it properly and accurately the research doesn't get done and it doesn't get done properly right so um i started talking to these kids in redfern and after i connected with the aim mentoring group and started being part of the failure time days and you know it was it was really interesting and this is no disrespect to aim but Mm. there was there was army there was art there was sport but there was no science Interesting. Um, and these kids, the notion of animals or zookeeping or alpaca shearing or, you know, any form of science was just like, wow, you must be super smart to do those things. I'm not really smart. But then I would ask them, I'd go, hey, okay, what's your favourite animal fact? What's your favourite science fact? And they'll be like, you know what, did you know that you can collect DNA from whale snot? Wow, I read that's that great. Somewhere. And I'm like, you know what, you're a scientist. Whether you have that piece of paper or not, you think mm-hmm. like a scientist, so why don't we change the conversation to, you know what, if we really want a diverse science industry, we need to have the conversations changing so that kids yeah. can actually see themselves and instead of seeing white men in lab coats or, you know, white people in lab coats with col- food colouring in test tubes, let's show them yeah. different forms of science. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, and like, and then you, I used to do these conversations, and I'd be like, you know what? Okay, we've got a glow in the dark mouse. Tell me how we get the glow in the dark mouse. Okay, oh. we use CRISPR Cas9 protein. Um, we cut into the DNA um, cassette and we inject, you know, say green fluorescent protein, and then you know, all of a sudden that um, we put it into the homozygous gene, and all the homozygous mice glow green, right? And that's probably explained in a completely incorrect way. But, you know, the whole idea behind that is like, well, okay, let, what are these kids going to tell me that, what do they think about that? And what are they, what yeah. are, how do they think that works by showing them a picture of that? And these kids were working it out. Like these kids were so smart, they were working it out. And quickly what happened was the army, the art, the footy, those sort of, <laughs> and they'll probably agree with this, is that they're like the, you know, the career days where the most, that would have been the most busy, like they would have been the ones that were getting the most interest. All mm. of a sudden everyone was flocking to the science talks. Yeah. Like, you know, it was, you can't be what you can't see. And these kids were actually being allowed to see it. And, you know, like, and then I went and saw the uni and, um, I saw a a professor and I said, look, I'm having a real impact on these kids. And he kind of laughed at me and looked at me and goes, you know what, you need a master's or a PhD to have real impact. Ah, No. Yeah, yeah. And, like, you know, and this is the attitude that academia has because we can't support something unless 
you know, they're an alumni of our university or like, or, you know, it, it, like the whole, the whole idea of like kids engaging in science is it's got to be materialized into a degree. And I'm like, not every mm. kid is going to go on and get a degree, but everyone can no. believe they're a scientist because science equals hope and education mm-hmm. equals freedom. And the only way we can achieve both is by giving people the hope that they can do it. I'm talking so much, but... Um, oh, it's so good. <laughs> yeah, basically, basically what happened was um, after a while, the, the program days started to, to slow down and um, I stopped getting calls and, you know, I kept in touch with a lot of the kids and I'd walk down to Redfern and Waterloo um, in my sort of after work on a Friday afternoon and would sort of we kept doing the talks for a while on the corner, um, on the street corner and... It was really great. You know, we'd still get 20 or 30 kids turn up. And then a couple of them, you know, a couple of them got into trouble and stuff. And then it just sort of like it, it sort of started to dwindle a bit. And then I was like, you know what, I've got to start younger and I've got to start, I've got to do more because um, as a person right now, and I'm someone that, you know, I've lost my best friend. I, I witnessed a really tragic accident when I was younger when I was a kid. I've gone through a lot of trauma. I've got a lot of life experience despite being very young. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm someone that they can see that is done something that's not, you know, is not white but also is young that has the ability, yeah, has the ability to to do something um, with themselves. And I was really, um, yeah, I like I like I – I was having such an impact on these kids because they could see themselves in me. Yeah. Um, so I Googled most remote schools and I started Googling and calling schools like a weirdo. Uh, <laughs> and and I was doing this while I was doing my job at the University of Sydney. And uh, in my lunch breaks, I was spending my lunch breaks talking to schools and emailing them. And when I would go home from, from work, from starting at 5 a.m., I was – you know, building these relationships. Um, and, you know, they they didn't, and this is the thing, it, it like it wasn't as simple as messaging schools and saying I've got books to send you. It was um, hours and hours and hours of listening. Um, and these schools were right not to trust me straight away. And I built these relationships and, and people, you know, I hope people listening to this know how much it takes to build a relationship with someone, Mm. Um, you know, a proper friendship um, that lasts years and years and years. And this is kind of what happened. And the first school I had only 15 books in the whole school and that was um, Mm. a really difficult thing for me to comprehend. But it was a problem that I found across the board. It's in every state that there's schools in Australia that are just completely under-resourced and, Again, just like those high schoolers, people aren't, they aren't thinking, you know what, science is for everyone. Yeah. It is for, you know, and it is for a set, select group of people and science generally gets, you know, sold to the private schools because mm-hmm. the private schools have money for science and industry and they're great things, you know, that's great. Like I think that all kids should have access to that. Yeah. So I end up sending all these books and after a while I – it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just one school that wanted books. It ended up being like four or five because mm. teachers and community, they talk just like everyone. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're like, this this guy from Sydney is sending us resources that we've never had before, you know, and we're, we're suddenly getting books that, that are better than the books we have because the books we have are from the 90s or early 2000s or, you know, they're outdated and like, you know, kids just don't get given new things in community. And I end up sort of like, I'm really stubborn, right? And <laughs> and to the point where I'm probably a bit stupid in the sense <laughs> of like, I will try and like, I will try and build that wall <laughs> instead yeah. of, um or, or knock down that wall by myself until like, you know, until I, I, w- I will not do it. I will not stop until I bang that door down. It took a while, but basically um, my partner said to me, you know what, like it's, you know, you can't afford this. 
And then someone at the uni was like, you know, a colleague, Marianne Large, was like, you know what, you need to get some help with this because you can't do it all by yourself. Yeah. And I was like, you know what, I don't need to listen to you. I'm going to start working a second job. And I did. I'm going to get more work on my plate. I'm going to get more work on my plate and I'm going to fund this myself. And, you know, as stupid as that sounds, like, again, it was was like I was in the shearing shed again and I'd been headbutted in the face. And I decided to keep going. And it was, um, yeah, like I started working in hand-rob pet hotels and started working this second job. And I, all my income from that job was going into deadly science and providing telescopes and books. And then um, it was probably about May 2018 I decided to set up my GoFundMe page after, you know, after people just sort of like (laughs) were saying to me, like, you've got to set up a GoFundMe page because like or put photos of this online because yeah. you know like you are doing such a great thing that people need to see this they need to see these yeah. kids learning and I took it took convincing and once I did that it sort of just exploded <laughs> um yeah. yeah and that's kind of how it happened that is just such uh, and I hate the word, but it is such a journey that it really harks back to being a kid who loved learning and teaching other people. You can like you can mm. you can see it. It's it's a strange line, but it's there. Yeah. I would love to ask if it was hard, because obviously where we left off you're starting to put it out into the public. And I think like I've seen quite a lot of stuff about deadly science online. I follow a lot of the science community, but was it hard to get the word out and how did you end up going about letting people know? Yeah, it was hard. Yeah, it, Where- it, was, it was hard because like, um, again, you don't want to be sort of like as an Indigenous person, you don't want to be like, oh, poor Aboriginal kids and poor black kids that don't get things because I feel like enough people do that. And you know what? There's some real positive stuff that happens in community. There's some real positive stuff that happens in Aboriginal culture that, you know, if I think if the majority of Australians saw that, that have a very different opinion on Aboriginal people. And we're often sold down the river of all these misconceptions and you know, it was hard in the beginning because, again, I wanted to protect the sovereignty and the sort of like the rights of the communities that I work with. But then it was really the communities that and the schools that wanted me to share it. Oh. Um, and they wanted to see that, like they wanted to, like they wanted just as much as I did to change these misconceptions. Can it be frustrating? So we were talking about you know, using the bush and using the land and using Indigenous knowledge as science because it is. It's, it yeah. is the first science. Science is all about making observations and, like, there are some incredible observations that have been made. But is that a frustrating thing to try to explain to people? Yeah, it is. It's a very, um, it's a very frustrating thing because, like, I, you know, we get told these sort of lies that, and, you know, we get told these lies that Aboriginal people sort of like hunter-gatherers and, you know, Captain Cook saved us pretty much. And it's like, well, no, like we have 65,000 years plus of knowledge mm. that is second to none. Um, we're the country that invented bread. And sometimes I like to think of it is that like the way I like to think of it is that, yeah, you know, you can't replace Aboriginal history and you cannot um, – you cannot lay claim to something that is that is not yours. But, you know, just by being born in Australia and being born in this land, you are, like, if you grew up knowing that you are from the country that invented bread um, and invented fish traps mm. and, you know, were the first people to use astronomy, you would, um, you know, you would have such a greater respect for Aboriginal rights and issues. Yeah. Um, and they, like, if you look at Egypt, for example, and, I mean, I don't want to compare Aboriginal history to Egypt because it's they're two different things and they're not really related at all. But the Egyptians, you know, their, their biggest um, sort of biggest thing is 
the pyramids, right? And it's the biggest tourism attraction. And um, with the pyramids, you have this history of slavery and genocide. So pharaohs were not nice people. Mm. <laughs> they were really nasty people. They were horrible people. Um, they didn't do good things. They raped and pillaged and they, you know, they had so many slaves and whatnot. But today we celebrate the good and the the technology and the magnificent things that the pharaohs left behind. But we also got to acknowledge some of the bad. Um, yeah. And the same is with Aboriginal people. If we are to acknowledge that we are the first country that invented bread and astronomy, we have to acknowledge the the issues that um, have arisen from colonization and and not just colonization, the stuff that's happened since, the deaths in custody, the yeah. the kids being taken away and put into foster care. And you know, if if we don't address that and we don't acknowledge the bad, then we cannot claim some of the good. You know, yeah. it it's and we need to change the language behind it. Like instead of instead of people feeling the blame for what's happened. We need to say, you know what, our ancestors stuffed up and yeah. did the wrong thing, but we're here to listen and make it right. Mm, very well said. Thinking about where deadly science is now, how does it feel to see so many young kids engage with something that you've put into place like how does it feel to see them holding the books and learning um it feels quite amazing you know it it's really special um because these kids don't get given things and you know to give them a chance and give them you know i'm a we're a long way from giving these kids the equal opportunity the same opportunities as other kids in australia but it it's really special to to pack a box of books or to pack up a telescope. Um, it's been special for my friends and my partner that have been able to help me do that. And then yeah. to see that arrive in community. Um, one of my favourite things to do is just have a yarn with the kids. And, um, you know, I feel so proud. Sometimes I feel, I shake <laughs> when I'm signing their little certificates. And, um, you know, it's something that like we've created to celebrate them. And it's in it's really important that they know that, you know, that we're really proud of them and that, you know, bilingual science and all that, every time I get a letter that's in language and I try my best to actually learn learn language and learn, you know, a lot about their culture. Um mm-hmm. and try not to put things on them like, you know, I don't say to them, Hey, you don't have to you have to think this way. Or, mm-hmm. you know, you can't ask that or, you know, I don't, I don't say that to them. So it's a really proud moment and it's like, it's like we're on a journey together. And, yeah, you know, the, some of the really, like some of the moments I've had, um, like I've, I've achieved a lot and we're probably going to get into this in the podcast, but, you know, I, I won the Young Australian of the Year Award for New South Wales last year and although that's a fantastic achievement and I love it to bits and, you know, I... I honestly could not believe that I was there. My greatest achievement has really been giving these kids a chance in the eyes of um, people that may have had these preconceptions um, and these these issues. And um, I think that, you know, to change the views of those people so they can start being proud of these kids and what they're achieving and these kids can feel that is a really special thing. I imagine you have learnt a lot from them yourself yeah I've learned so much we're going to take a bit of a sidestep we're going to break it up a little bit just because the rest of the particle team had some I guess some quirky questions to start off with you've obviously worked a lot with animals and you've worked with people who's easier to work with animals or people well, um, it's an interesting question. So I've been injured a lot by animals. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one of the worst injuries I ever had was a pig put its tusk from my leg and I got 12 <gasps> stitches in my thigh. Oh, um, my goodness. But I've also worked with a lot of difficult people. Um, yeah. <laughs> and maybe because I've worked with a lot of difficult people, maybe I'm the difficult person and I don't see that. Um, but I feel like people are way worse because – Yeah. At least if an animal hurts you, you know its intentions is to hurt you. Um, mm. 
And like, I find, um, and I love working with both actually. I love working with both people and animals. Um, I find, I find people really funny because it's like, you know, we care, we care about such insignificant things where an animal, what an animal really cares about is how am I going to survive today? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And how am I going to live tomorrow? And like, you know, and I kind of wish people, I, I wish people didn't get involved in petty stuff and didn't really care so much about the aesthetics of things and more about how are we going to make life better for someone else instead of mm. worse? And so I would have to say animals are better because at least their <laughs> intention is clear. And if you're, if you're a spider or something, you're going to eat that bug. You're not going to befriend it and then eat it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. What's one animal you never want to work with again? If I'm completely honest, um, yeah. I, I love all animals and I love pigs, but um, I seem to have really bad luck with pigs. Um, <laughs> yeah. And even the wild pigs as well. When I grew up on the farm, they always used to chase me and stuff. So I'm always wary <laughs> oh. around pigs. Yeah. So I'm going to have to say like, yeah, if, if I could avoid working with pigs again, I'd be quite happy. <laughs> Good answer. Who is one human you would love to work with again? Because you've gotten to meet and work with some pretty cool people along your along your journey. Yeah, like I I got to meet Brian Cox and he was really nice. Oh, um, what was that like? He was really lovely. I mean, um, I've worked, I've I've chatted a bit to Ben Simmons um, so cool. on this journey and Roy McManus and some really cool people like Lisa Harvey Smith. Um, oh. I you know what? Like, um, to be honest, I. There's no one really that sort of stands out because I love working with everyone. Um, yeah. But if I have to go back, it would be um, a teacher from Elko Island called Valerie, um, and she's an elder, and she teaches in bilingual, and she's a real staunch, hard woman, but I just loved her to bits. Um, I had a real soft spot for Valerie, and I still do, and she's you know probably in her late 80s now, but she's an original wow. teacher there. And it's, yeah, amazing. Just incredible. Oh, shout out to Valerie. She sounds incredible. Yeah, she's amazing. And like, she's, yeah, she's supported us a lot um, in terms of teaching science in language. And um, yeah, just absolutely, absolutely really like her. Are there many people out there who are teaching science in language? Um, you know what? Not really. <laughs> um, yeah. But the, there is getting more. That's good. Yeah. Are there challenges involved? Like who, I don't know if this is a silly question, but how can we increase that and make sure that that's Um, being encouraged? Like, so I said this into the speech that um, I wrote for the Australian of the Year Awards, but I never got to actually read it. Oh, Um, good. Good timing. (laughs) It was good. It was good timing, but it was, um, you know, I, I, I encourage um, the science community and the community in general to include more Indigenous perspectives in how mm. how we look at science. Um, and, you know, the more we listen and the more we, we gain is the more we can put back into schools. And, mm. you know, sending a telescope is fine because you can connect that back to country. Mm-hmm. You, know, you connect that back to the astronomy and you can tell the stories and kids can actually see the planets and and do all that jazz. But until we listen to First Nations perspectives and start seeing it as science and change the language from how we communicate, mm. we aren't going to change. Um, and we're the one, like, and I say this as an Indigenous person as well that's in a white space, um, we're the ones that need to change, not the community. You know, and the the bad stuff that gets focused on in the media and and said all the time, it's ignorant of us to believe there's no good that happens in community. Um, yeah, it is. It is ignorant of us to um, put a label on someone. And each Aboriginal person's different from community to community. We're all different, but we all have one thing in common, and that's 
And it's the same for whether you're white, black, yellow, purple, whatever race you are, kids love learning and they love learning yes. about their history and they love learning about science and they love learning about anything. Um, so we, you know, the greatest limitations in life are those that we put, those that we put on ourselves. But if we put limitations on kids based on race and color, then we're really limiting ourselves because we're, we're not only limiting them, but we're limiting what we can learn from them. What is some science that's gotten you personally excited over the last few months? Yeah, I just, I, I'm just excited about how, how many people have got behind deadly science and are just inspired yeah. by what we're doing. And, you know, we're a team now, I've got other people involved and we're, we're just going to grow it. And I really hope that, you know, I hope one day there's not a need for deadly science because in a perfect world we wouldn't need a deadly science. But, yeah, it would be really great. Who's on your team now? How many of you are working on deadly science? Um, so we've got a board of four. Um, great. And, yeah, I, I'm still doing a lot of legwork, but I'm starting to give that away now. And starting Is to it work. hard to give away? Um, you know what? No, it's not. Um, Good. Because at the end of the day, it's not about me. Um, it's mm-hmm. about the kids and it's about building on what we – it's about building on the foundations that we've laid and we need – we need people to help. Where do you find the books that you send? Um, I I actually handpick them, and they're books that um they're not your tokenistic books. They're books that are going to engage the mind. I call them spark books. So Ooh. books that are going to ask questions. I want books that kids are going to read, and they're going to phone me up a week later and say, you know, um, basically, why does a dolphin look the way it does, and why is it aerodynamic? <laughs> I want to yeah. see that. I want to see questions like that. What would you say to people who think science is just for nerds? I would say that open your eyes because we use science every day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Whether you like it or not, if you've asked why the sky is blue or the grass is green, that is a science question and kids are the best scientists. Absolutely. And to finish up with, and I don't doubt you have so many of these in your brain. I'll be surprised if you can even pick one. But I was wondering what your science fun fact is. Um, my science party fact is this. So I, I like love this fact. And so our packers, for example, so mo- not many people would know this, but um, our packers have these fighting teeth, which they use to castrate each other, which sounds really disgusting. <gasps> but then they become a thing called a weather. And so they don't kill each other. They're they're combative, but they don't kill each other, but they main each other so they can never breed again. And what what happens is, is that the weather male alpacas end up becoming sort of Korea guards and they guard the little baby Koreas from pumas. And in Australia, we've got a huge fox problem. Um, You know, millions of foxes across Australia that target baby lambs. And also wedge-tail eagles that come down mm. from the sky and they'll pick out a baby lamb and they'll drag it away to its doom. Um, and mm. some clever farmers in Australia have worked out that if you have one to two weather male Suri alpacas or even like wakaias, but wakaias are kind of like a little bit um, wussy, but Suri <laughs> are incredibly dangerous. Like they've almost got a little bit more vicunia in them than um like he is um but but anyway um they actually kill foxes and they kill they kill wedge tail eagles and they make really good fox guards wow yep and they can smell from a mile away that's crazy oh well in that case i was gonna leave it but i'm gonna ask it now i had another fun strange question from zaya on the team she said what's the best technique for shearing alpacas um, well, that's it. It's really interesting. You can't shear them like a sheep. You've got to actually oh. cut them down. Um, some shearers have an electric table, which is a hydraulic table, which they strap the alpaca to and it turns upside down and then they shear it. But um, James and I had a really good technique where we actually sheared them on the ground and it was a lot quicker and that we didn't, we minimized sort of the mechanical nature of shearing our packers as quickly as possible mm. so we didn't stress out the animals and we also used to cut their teeth and cut their toenails and oh my their worming injections and we, the process would be all done in about six and a half minutes 
That blows my mind. And we'll do about 180 a day. <laughs> wow. I can't believe you stuck with it as long as you did. Have you ever wanted yeah. to go back and do it again? Um, I have come back and done the, the odd guest appearance as a rouseabout, but right. I, I do not think I have the fitness. What advice would you give to someone who's pursuing science, whether that be, you know, in all the different facets that you can use science, but maybe who's feeling like a little bit uninspired or who's running out of steam? I would say, you know, I think that we'd, um, if you're, like, if you are, um, you know, needing a bit of a recharge and need a bit more motivation, I would say go outside um, Mm. and look around you and whether you're seeing a bee collecting pollen to go and um, turn that into honey or you're seeing a, um, a spider wasp cut off a spider after it's just injected it with paralytic venom to go and lay an mm-hmm. egg in its brain so that the larva <laughs> can eat it. Um, science is all around you. And yes. if you see a blue tongue lizard, for example, just remember that blue tongue, it's the um, ultimate creature of bluff. That blue means venomous the animal kingdom and it's going to grow to twice the size so it can scare you off and say, I'm big and venomous and get away from me. Or you can say, okay, look at that goanna in the back. It's going to dig inside of termite mound and lay its eggs and use that as an incubator. Um, and those baby goannas are going to come out and eat all the larvae and the mum's going to come and dig them out of that termite mound after the termites repair their nest. Whether you um, Whether you see that or not, Science is all around you. And if you need motivation, yeah. you don't have to look far. I love that. And also now I really want to go outside. <laughs> yeah. Corey, it has been an absolute delight talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Particle Podcast. You can find more of our content on all of the socials as well as at particle.scitech.org.au. This episode, as always, was made in the vibrant science hub that is Western Australia and Particle is powered by Scitech.